All right, so two weeks ago, we began our three-part series entitled, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Today, we're going to finish up that three-part series. The primary goal of this series is to glorify God by helping people overcome worry and anxiety. And there is no doubt that anxiety is a thief. Anxiety, worry, it's a thief that wants to rip you off, metaphorically speaking. Anxiety is a thief, and if we don't resist it, it's going to steal our joy, it's going to steal our productivity, and it's going to steal our overall uh, sense of well-being. So we got to resist anxiety. we got to understand what, the, what is the remedy of anxiety. When it comes to this topic, there's a lot on the line, and how we choose to respond and how we choose to deal with worry and anxiety and stress, it's either gonna make us or it's gonna break us. Now personally, I am so glad that we as Christians have a Father in heaven who loves us and who cares for us. Is there anybody else who's grateful for that fact, right? So glad that we have a Father in heaven. And the last thing the father wants for his kids is for his kids to be strangled by worry. I mean, come on, moms and dads who have kids, do you really want your kids to walk around all day, you know, just freaked out and scared and worried and full of anxiety? You say, of course not. That's the last thing I want for my kids. Well, times that desire that you have for your kids by a million, zillion, and now you come to how the father feels about us. Anxiety is a thief, and the thief is gonna rip you off. But Jesus Christ says, no, that's not what I want for you. There's a better way. And so he inspires the Apostle Paul to write this classic passage in the fourth chapter of Philippians. And so right now, if you're looking at Philippians chapter four, verse six, can you say amen so I know you're there? All right, so check this out. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, do not be anxious about anything. Pardon the bad English, but don't worry about nothing, (laughs) right? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. Can you guys say the word prayer? And supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, there's your remedy for worry right there. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think. Can you guys say the word think? Think about these things. And then today, verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice. Can you guys say the word practice? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so from this powerful passage, here's what we learn. That if we really wanna overcome anxiety in our lives, we have got to be committed to proper praying That's verses six and seven. Proper thinking, that's verse eight. And proper living, that's verse nine. Three-part series, okay, so we kicked it off. Week one, we tackled the topic of proper praying. And what we learned, essentially, in that week 
was that when we choose to engage right, in this rich communion with God, that's made up of prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, having that attitude of gratitude, what happens? God gives us his peace. And then we learned in week two as we tackled the topic of proper thinking that if we're very careful about what we allow into the gate of our minds, if we're very careful to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, if we're very careful to immerse our minds with thoughts about God and thoughts about his word, what's gonna happen? God's gonna give us his peace. And now today, week three, we're gonna tackle this topic of proper living. And what we're gonna learn today is that if we actually apply the word of God to our lives. In other words, if we are not just hearers, but if we're doers of the word, what, is Paul, what did Paul just say? The God of peace will be with you. What happens when we engage in proper praying, proper thinking, proper living? Here's what happens, God's peace pushes our anxiety away. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a thief. He's called anxiety. He wants to rip you off. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your productivity. He wants to steal this, this whole idea of your overall sense of well-being. But how many of you guys believe that God is greater? God's greater. And so listen, if we do these things, he's gonna push that anxiety away. And so let's talk about proper living today. Paul wrote to the Philippians in verse nine. He said, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul could say to the Philippians, hey, I've known you for a long time now and I've taught you a lot. And so what I want you to do, what you've seen in my life, what you've heard from my lips, I want you to practice these things. Now, when, now regarding the timeline of Paul's um, relationship with the Philippians, we've learned in the past that way back in AD 50 or thereabouts, uh, Paul, while he was on his first missionary journey with his friend Silas, what did he do? He went to the, the town of Philippi, there in Macedonia, and he planted the church of Philippi. You fast forward about six years or so, you come to about AD 56, Paul's on his third missionary journey. And what does he do? He makes at least, we believe, two separate stops, probably more, um, on his third missionary journey to visit with the Philippians again. He's there in Macedonia, he's spending time ministering, and so he's meeting with people, he's visiting with them. You fast forward now to where we are in our Bible, AD 61, Paul is under house arrest at Rome. He's waiting to be um, tried before Caesar Nero. And what does he do? He takes out a pen and he pens the letter. Praise God, we got it 2,000 years later. He pens this letter to the Philippians. All right, so regarding their interaction with Paul, whether personal visits, whether correspondence, the apostle would say to them, hey, you know me. You know my doctrine and you know my life. Through what I've you know, taught you with my lips, and through what I've shown you, and how many of you guys um, understand that, that more things are taught, uh, caught than taught, right? 
And it's more important to live it than to say it. We gotta say it, but it's more important to live it. And so Paul would say, hey, through what I've taught you with my lips and through, more importantly, what I've shown you with my life, what I've consistently done is I appointed you to Jesus Christ and I appointed you to godly living. And so what, I, what would I want you to do? I want you, verse nine, and everything you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, I want you to practice it. I want you to apply it. I want you to uh, uh, put it in gear in your life and the God of peace will be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's really not rocket science. And so if we wanna experience God's peace, if we wanna overcome anxiety, and we got to commit ourselves, as Paul says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to proper prayer, to proper thinking, and to proper living. Proper living, living out the scriptures. Now, speaking of the scriptures, here's what you need to know historically. That in the latter half of the first century AD, the Apostle Paul's letters were in circulation all around the Roman Empire. Right, all those countries around the Mediterranean basin Right, the Roman Empire from church to church, to city to city, the Apostle Paul's letters were in circulation. Elders, pastors, leaders were standing in front of congregations like this and they were reading the letter of Paul to whatever uh, church. And so they were in circulation. Here's the question I have for you. How should we treat Paul's teachings? How should we treat Paul's teachings? Well, the answer is found in his letter to the Thessalonians, okay? And so, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you see, receive the word of God, check this out, which you heard from us, you accepted it, I want you to see this, not as the word of men, but as what it is for sure, the word of God, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so after planting the church of Philippi, what did Paul and Silas do? They went up the road to Thessalonica. If they were living today, after visiting Port St. Lucie, they go down the road to West Palm Beach, same thing. And so there in Macedonia, you have the city of Philippi, you have the city of Thessalonica. And so they go to the, the city of Thessalonica and they're sharing this good news, and when the Thessalonians heard Paul sharing the good news, praise God, they received it as the word of God. Question, how should we treat Paul's teachings? Answer, as the word of God. You say, why are you so animated? Because we have churches today that are growing in number, that are standing, and they're giving pop, superficial, motivational speeches, and they're ignoring the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot improve upon this book. And so my job as a pastor is not to wow you. My job as a pastor is not to entertain you. My job as a pastor is not to make you even feel good. I hope you feel good, but that's not my job. My job is to, to disciple you, and the way we disciple people is through the teaching of the Word of God. That's how we do it. And so how do we treat Paul's teachings? As the Word of God. And Peter confirmed this in his second letter. He said, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, 
as he does in all his, what? All his letters. I love Peter, he's a blue collar fisherman. In all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things that are hard to understand, Peter would say. You know, I'm not a scholar like the Apostle Paul, um, so there's some things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Now, here's what I want you to get. As they do the other what? You guys see that? The Apostle Peter is going on record and he's saying that Paul's letters are scripture, graphe. Now what do we know about the scriptures? What do we know about the graphe? Well Peter said um, a little earlier in that same letter, he also said this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture. Now time out for just a second. When we think uh, of prophecy, normally we think of foretelling. Right, so we think of Isaiah, for example, the prophet, living 700 years BC, and God reveals to him, right, the details. This is not vague Nostradamus stuff. God shows Isaiah details about the future suffering servant. We know him as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and you read Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus ever lived, and you see a detailed, accurate account of what actually happened to him, and then all of a sudden you start to understand this book is not the word of men, this must be the word of God, right? And so we usually think of prophecy as foretelling, but I'm here to tell you that prophecy is not just foretelling. Prophecy is also forth telling. It's foretelling and it's also forth telling. And so back to our text, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, that word in the Greek is graphe, it's the writings. All right, so knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is what's so heavy on my heart because a lot of people in our culture, they say, look, this is just a book, a bunch of religious guys got together and they wrote their religious ideas. And so no wonder we're ignoring it, but that's not true. What they're saying is a lie. Well, how, how, how do you know? Well, this is one of the, of the texts right here that we go to when we consider that the Bible is God's word. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In the Greek, it's someone's own loosing. And so it's not like a bunch of guys just loosed their religious ideas on the world and now we have the Bible. No. He goes on to say this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And as I taught 2 Peter uh, to you guys verse by verse some months ago, I, I talked about how that phrase carried along reminds us of a sailboat, all right? And so just as the wind fills the sails of a sailboat and moves that vessel along, this is what I love about the Bible. What a gift this is to us, okay? So this is what the Holy Spirit did. He filled the Old Testament prophets and he filled the New Testament apostles and associates and what was produced, the graphe, the writings, the scriptures, which is the word of God. 
We have this amazing book and man, what are we doing? We're not getting into it the way that we need to get into it. And so I'll ask you the question again, how should we treat Paul's teachings in his letters? Yeah, the word of God. And not just the letter of Paul to the Philippians, but all his letters to all those cities. And so Paul's letter uh, to the church of Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae and his two letters to the church in Thessalonica and his two letters to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, all 13 of Paul's letters. And if you think, personally I'll disagree with you, but if you think Paul wrote Hebrews, then all 14 of his letters, guess what? They were breathed out by God. Now, of course, Paul's writings are not the only inspired documents that we have. We have an entire Bible here. Old Testament and New Testament, and ladies and gentlemen, 2 Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17. If you're listening to my voice, say amen here. Amen. Listen, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration in the Greek means breathed out. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. You say, what does the church really need? Right here, what I'm saying. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that's an interesting phrase. Man in the Greek there is anthropos. It means human being. And so properly speaking, that the man or woman of God. So ladies, are you with me this morning? Okay, so all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of it, all scripture. Now here's what I know, quick side note, and I'll get back to the main topic here, and that is that we are new covenant Christians, right? And so what does that mean? That means that the Old Testament was written um, under the Old Covenant, and we need to understand as new covenant Christians which parts of the Old Testament apply to us and which don't. I gotta make sure I say that because some of you are new to the Bible, you're new to church, you haven't heard any of this stuff, and tomorrow you may buy a Bible and you may open it up and start your devotions in Leviticus and think, what? <laughs> okay, and so if you're not sure which parts of the Old Testament apply to us today and which don't, um, here's what I wanna do. I wanna encourage you to go to gotquestions.org and um, uh, type in the article, What Should Christians Learn from the Mosaic Law? Okay, so what should Christians learn from the Mosaic Law, gotquestions.org. We're always, always pushing that website. Such an amazing resource. Back on track to the main topic. Generally speaking, what should we do with the word of God? James answers us. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's our marching orders right there. You can either accept it or deny it. You can listen or you can ignore it. It's your choice. How many of you guys know that God made all of us free will beings? It's up to you. And so on the count of three, let's all say this verse together. One, two, three, go. Be doers. 
All right, so the New Testament is crystal clear. Genuine faith is demonstrated by an application of the word of God. In other words, real faith is shown by works. So we're done in Philippians, and now we're gonna go to James chapter two. And so please turn on over to James chapter two. This is where the Lord led me this week as I was in my study preparing for um, all of this. As you're turning to James two, just a quick reminder, what are we doing? We're talking about overcoming anxiety. How do you do that? Proper praying, proper thinking, proper living. And so on this topic of proper living, um, there's probably um, no better text than James chapter two, second part of the chapter. Now, here's what you need to know before we jump in that this is probably one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. This is probably one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted sections of the word of God. Some people, after reading the second half of James 2, they imagine that there is a contradiction between the Apostle Paul's teachings and the Apostle James' teachings. But here's what I wanna tell you this morning, and that is that when properly understood, there is no contradiction whatsoever. Now before we read James' words, I want you to look at two verses regarding Paul's teaching on justification. I wanna set the table here, right? And so Paul said this, top of your screen, Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now this is huge. This is like mammoth right here. Why, because it's talking about how to have eternal life. <laughs> We're justified by faith, okay? And then please notice what the Apostle Paul does. He wants to make sure that we don't misunderstand and so that why, um, for that reason, he says, apart from the works of the law. We're justified by faith apart from doing works. Very, very important that we understand this. Now the word justified, as Paul used it in Romans, it means to declare righteous to declare righteous. It speaks of the righteousness, not of our own righteousness, it's not what it's talking about. It speaks of the righteousness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay, so justification, what does it mean? It means to be declared righteous. It's the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that is imputed, that is ascribed, that is given to a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And so, as you think through this with me, the Holy Spirit is on the move. How many of you guys believe that God is not willing that anybody should perish, right? But that all should come to repentance. So well, here's what the Holy Spirit uh, does. Uh, he, 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 he goes after people, he draws people. We have the witness of creation without, we have the witness of conscience within, we have the witness of general revelation, we have uh, the witness of uh, special revelation. The Holy Spirit is working in people's lives, right? He's drawing people. When a person hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and when they 
uh, turn to Christ, right, in genuine repentance and faith. I'm talking about receiving Jesus as the Savior and the Lord of their life. What does God do? God justifies that person. God declares that that person is righteous. God clothes that person in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when God looks down on that person, positionally, what does he see? He sees perfection. He sees purity. He sees righteousness. And that, ladies and gentlemen, and that alone is the reason we go to heaven. I was really hoping more than three people would say amen right there. Because this is super good news, what we're talking about right here. Now, if we could be justified by keeping the law of Moses, if we could be justified by doing good works, Jesus died in vain. And isn't that what Paul said to the church of Galatia at the bottom of your screen? He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. This is heavy on my heart too because there's a lot of people in the world, right? And they think they can earn eternal life. They think they can merit that mansion in heaven. And so they're trying and they're trying and they're trying, right? And it's so sad because what are they essentially saying? What they're essentially saying to God is, I don't need your son. I don't recognize what he did on the cross as efficacious for the forgiveness of my sins. I could care less. I can do this on my own. And they're walking before a perfect holy God in some kind of stinking, smelly, tattered uh, robe of self-righteousness. And ladies and gentlemen, they'll never go to heaven like that. Never. And so we need to hear the true gospel in the church today. And this is what I'm telling you this morning. This is the true gospel. We need to recognize that Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, he's the Lamb of God and he shed his blood for us. You say, why did he have to shed his blood? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You can work and work and work and work and work until your head explodes and you'll never come one uh, inch closer to atoning for your sins. It's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done on the cross. That's the truth. It's a free gift. And so Paul rightfully says we can't be saved by works. Nonetheless, James comes along and James says, well, works are important. Now, we would agree with him, right? <laughs> yeah, here's where you say yes. <laughs> yeah, we agree with him. We're Christians. Good works are very important. But if you're listening to me right now, say amen. James is not saying that good works are important as deeds that merit salvation. He's saying that good works are important as deeds that show salvation. Now that was like a bomb of truth. I wanna read it again, I'm reading. Whenever I read, it's because I'm being very careful. I wanna make sure that you guys hear this correctly. And so James comes along, he says good works are important but he's not saying that good works are important as deeds that merit salvation. He's saying they're important as deeds that show salvation. Okay, so that's in verses 14 and following. And so right now, if you're looking at James 2.14, can you say amen? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Now that's the key to interpreting the second half of James chapter two. 
He's just saying it. We're gonna see it's a false profession of faith. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith, quote unquote, faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead, all right, so in this passage, James is showing very clearly, he's giving us an illustration of fake faith. <laughs> fake faith. So what he's, what he's doing is he's picturing a person, right, who has a profession, um, he's a religious person. The problem is someone comes across his path and this person is in need. Instead of meeting the need of this person, what does he do? He gives them a bunch of empty religious cliches. Be warmed and filled, right? Um, um, God bless you, go in peace. In other words, See you later, get out of my face, I don't have time for you. And, J and James says at the end of verse 16, what good is that? What good is someone's so-called faith if it doesn't have fruit? Can that kind of faith save him? Okay, everybody look at me, see what I'm doing here? Because it's a fake faith. It's not the real deal. And so it's, since it's a fake faith, um, his profession of faith is not real. That person may know about Christ, they don't know Christ. How many of you guys know that you can give intellectual assent to religious things? You can even give intellectual assent um, to truths about God, and you're not saved because of that intellectual assent? Verse 19 says demons have that intellectual assent, that there is a monotheistic God, there is a one true God, and they shudder. Are demons saved? No. And so in verse 18, um, James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Uh, here's well, another one of those big keys of how to interpret James 2. Um, here it is. And I, end of verse 18, and I will show you my faith by my works. All right, and so the main point in the, pa in the passage is that genuine faith shows itself by good works. It shows itself, it demonstrates, all right? In other words, why? Because if any man or woman is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so this is uh, the truth, and James brings this aspect out um, um, of the truth in the second part of chapter two. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. After he talks about that head knowledge that demons have, uh, which of course is not an example of genuine faith, James then goes on in verses 20 through 25, he gives us two examples of, of a couple people that actually had real faith, Abraham and Rahab, all right? And so Abraham, what did he do? He showed his faith by his works because he was willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar. And then you have Rahab the harlot, what does she do? She shows her faith by her work, by hiding the two Hebrew slaves. Why? Because genuine faith is evidenced, shown by works. Now I went way deeper than I have time to go uh, today 
when we went verse by verse through James 2. And so um, I encourage you guys to go back and get that teaching on our website or on our, our podcast. Um, but here's, here's the question. Um, what kind of faith do we have? And so jump down to verse 26 of James chapter two. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The question we need to ask ourselves as we're confronted with James chapter two is this. Do I have genuine faith or do I have fake faith? And genuine faith is evidenced by applying the word of God. Back to our main text. Paul says what you've learned and what you've received and what you've heard and what you've seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so back to square one. If we wanna experience God's peace, if we wanna overcome anxiety, we've got to engage in proper praying and proper thinking, and proper living, which is evidence that we know him. And so in closing, with one last verse. I'm gonna quote to you guys Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And most evangelicals, they stop right there, and they forget that there's this thing called Ephesians 2, 10, <laughs> okay? And so here's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, then verse 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all God's people said, amen. amen.